Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. My name is Trey Kaufman, and it's my mission to have conversations that help us all better understand what happiness means to each of us on a fundamental level. Sometimes that means I get to talk with an entrepreneur who has taken a leap of faith to start a business and what it is they do daily to demand the very best for themselves. Other times I'm fortunate enough to have conversations with someone who has a deep understanding of brain chemistry and what happens inside our heads when we feel pleasure, contentment, and achievement. My guest today falls into that latter category. I have one ask for you today, and it's not a new one. I would be incredibly grateful if you would share this episode of the podcast with a friend. Noelle and I really dive deep into a lot of insecurities we all feel, and because she has an understanding of how and why we experience these emotions, she and I are able to discuss ways in which we can not only process them, but give them space to exist in a healthy manner as well. And, of course, given the fact that Noelle is an expert on the subject, we spend a lot of time talking about positive psychology and happiness. One note I do want to mention, uh, we didn't have the greatest connection when we talked, and you'll hear some popping noises scattered throughout. I cleaned them up as best as I could, but I wanted to point this out to let you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with your speakers. Noelle Cordeaux is CEO and co-founder of Journey Coaching. She is also a feminist scholar, ICF certified coach, speaker, and sexologist who specializes in the relationship with the self. She has carved out a unique niche in the world of coaching, combining positive psychology with clinical sexology to help her clients gain true progress. Noelle holds a BA in literature from Rutgers University and a graduate certificate in executive and professional coaching from the University of Texas at Dallas. Please welcome my guest, the amazing Noelle Cordell. Noelle, how are you? I am well. How are you? I am so good. I'm so excited to talk with you. Like we were just saying, uh, I'm actually looking at the original email. It's been well, it's been just over 11 months since we last spoke, and I have been so looking forward to catching up and chatting. So I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity to do so. Me as well. And thank you for putting together this podcast. It's such important work to put out into the world. Well, I, I appreciate that. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my notes that I, I took originally. And, you know, one of the first things that I had written down, and I'm just, we're just going to see where this conversation takes us. But in, in relation to the podcast and happiness, I had written down happiness psychology. And I'm just, I'm wondering if we, I'm wondering if we can start there and just uh, talk about uh, some of the work you're doing and what that means to you. Absolutely. So in my day job, I run a coach training program at Journey Coaching. And one of the hallmarks of coaching as a discipline is to harness hope and the associated applied sciences of positive psychology so that we as coaches can understand how to help our clients start with a foundation of empirically based ways to bring happiness into our lives. That's... uh... I, I, I like I, I like that, um, and I, I'm, I want to dig into all of that. And in regard to positive psychology, um, there's a I'm trying to remember 
there was a book I read and I can't remember the name of it right now, but uh, it was a book all on positive psychology and it actually got me into the habit of doing a few things prior to uh, t tackling a task. And for this specific example, actually in regard to the podcast, prior to hitting record or even hopping on the call with you, there's one particular uh, YouTube song video that I watch every time just to get me in the appropriate mindset. And I mean, I, I've talked, I've, I've spoken about positive psychology in the past. I, I know I would butcher the explanation of it. So I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of just talk about, you know, what psychology means from your standpoint, from a, from a, I guess, I don't know if clinical is the right word, but from a, uh, from the place where you actually bring or do the work with your clients? Yeah. So positive psychology in a nutshell is the science of happiness. And happiness is really subjective. And yeah. so everyone can kind of, you know, slap their own label on it. I think when we say happiness, everybody comes to mind that smiley face that was created in the 70s. But when we really get down to the science of happiness, positive psychology, what it represents for humans in real terms, everyday terms, is finding connection with others, finding a flow state in yeah. your own life, finding moments of joy, moments of serenity, moments of peace, all of those really wonderful associated positive emotions that bridge together, in Martin Seligman's words, to form a life well lived. I love that. That's that's very impactful. And I mean, you know, I, I perhaps foolishly set out on a quest to create a podcast on happiness without understanding that, uh, truly, without understanding that it is subjective. I thought it was this destination that we were all able to get to if we had the right inputs and variables and we were able to do the right things in our lives to really find that state of perpetual joy without realizing that joy does not equate necessarily to happiness, nor does pleasure, nor does um, euphoria or any of the other positive words. And so I, I, I guess I've just come to discover just that. I mean, it means something else. It means something different to everybody. So when it, when it is a subjective, I mean, how, I don't know, I, I, just, I guess I'm really trying to break down how you work with people to, to find that definition for themselves and really discover what it means to them. Yeah. So, you know, Martin Seligman um, works out of the University of Pennsylvania, Applied Positive Psychology Program. And he's widely regarded as the godfather of positive psychology because he was really the very first one to begin researching this in, in yeah. the academic halls of, of Penn. Um, but there are so many other great researchers out there. Caroline Miller is one of them. Uh, Sonia Lumanierski, Barbara Fredrickson is one of my favorites. And another researcher who I really enjoy is Kate Hefferon. And she's at the University of East London. And she put forth a super simple framework for understanding, okay, so if we're talking about a life well lived, if we're talking about the subjective nature of happiness, what do humans actually need to experience a realistic balance? And it's a third, a third, and a third. One third hedonic, which is pleasure, fun, mm -hmm. all of that good stuff. One third achievement, which encapsulates both physical and mental. And a human can't be working at the top rate of both physical and mental at the same time. 
And so that's important to note is that you you can't be, you know, at 100% physical, you can't be at 100% mental, you'd be exhausted. So you kind of have to pick pick one and do the best you can. And right. then the third piece is contentment. And contentment is noticing the simple joys day in and day out. You know, your children giggling. If you're wearing a really soft t-shirt, savoring a beautiful sunset or a hot cup of coffee. And when we think about the way that life is kind of laid out, especially in the United States, our culture is really focused on achievement, physical and mental. And the idea of cultivating pleasure, fun, cultivating contentment kind of goes by the wayside. And so I like that very simple formula to say, okay, you know, this is how we can do this. That's a great breakdown. And that's not something I'd heard before. Um, you know, I, I've thrown around the term, perhaps without fully understanding what it means, hedonic treadmill on, on probably countless occasions on this podcast. And to me, that's that's a, um, that's something that I, I guess I had felt for a long time, just always chasing the next accomplishment, the next high, the next, you know, uh, pleasurable moment without really understanding that, I have the ability to be content right now without needing more in my life. So, I mean, I understand why we need uh, an equal balance of, of these three things, but for somebody who seeks out cardinal pleasures more so than anything else, I mean, how, how do you really strive to find a balance there? So you're not constantly just trying to, you know, get high or have sex or just have all of these pleasurable feelings where you need to balance it out with the achievement and the contentment as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, each, each of those areas, achievement, uh, hedonic and contentment have different neurobiological nutrient outputs. So the term hedonic treadmill refers really specifically to the period of adaption that a human body and a human brain will adhere to when we gain something that is pleasure or achievement oriented. So if you uh, put an addition on your house, buy a bigger house, or finally get that you know shiny new toy that you've been yearning for, or you get a promotion at work, or you deadlift 200 pounds, Whatever it is, the pleasure, the high, the achievement or hedonic high that will come from that event will last a period of three months, three months only, no more, no less, before you're back to craving something more. And then with the contentment piece, it's a little bit different. Contentment doesn't uh, fade away the same way that hedonic or achievement does. It's actually longer lasting and tends to build up different kinds of reserves in your brain and body for anchoring in that feeling. Oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine stick around a little bit longer. And so, you know, from that perspective, we can recognize as humans, okay, you know, pleasure and achievement are fleeting. Contentment is pretty long lasting. That's 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 a good distinction, and I, I appreciate uh, you clarifying that. Um, I mean, when it comes to these three areas—the the hedonic, the the achievement, contentment—and the things that we need to find that happiness. I mean, how much of 
the positive psychology research as I guess, or if any is based on, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, are, is this, are we reaching self-actualization where we find that, uh, that, that happiness or is that somewhere, uh, I guess more toward the bottom where the necessities actually lie? Uh, this is a question. It's a great question. And it's a question that I get often when I talk about positive psychology. Um, and it usually kind of flows into, you know, whether it's Maslow or a concept of the worried well, you know, isn't positive psychology, you know, isn't happiness um, just for those who have the luxury and the privilege of focusing on it. Right. And for this particular question, I like to point to the work of Barbara Fredrickson. Barbara Fredrickson is a researcher out of UNC Chapel Hill, and she runs a positive emotions laboratory called the PEP Lab. Um, and what she has been able to work through and produce a tremendous body of research around is the outcome of positive emotions in our brains and our bodies when we eat them like fruits and vegetables. So taking the time to focus on pleasure, achievement, and contentment, each of those different categories is associated with a different kind of positive emotion, joy, love, awe, inspiration, um, humor, um, bonding with a peer. Each of those beautiful slices of life give us a different set of nutrients, just like yeah. if you ate a carrot, a tomato, spinach, so on and so forth. In order to have a healthy brain and body, you can't just eat one carrot and call it a day. You have to fill your brain and body with lots of nutrients. Same deal for positive emotions. Now, the outcome of doing such is that you will move more readily into your neocortex. Why is that important? Well, your stress response lives in your limbic system and your reptilian brain. So when you're able to move more quickly into your neocortex, you're able to harness a bird's eye view of any situation and limit your fight or flight response. So that's useful for everyone. And I might say that's really useful for folks who are in dire situations. And that's just outcome number one. Secondary outcomes are increased verbal dexterity, durable social relationships, people who can help you in life, right. increased coordination that supports mobility aging, or if you really had to run from danger, um, and then repair to your heart from cardiovascular stress. That's interesting. Um, and I, I like the the comparison to, you know, the types of foods that we eat. And there, and there are obviously better and worse foods and, and not all calories are created equally. So the inputs into your, 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 your body or your happiness or your contentment levels, I mean, are there... I have to imagine that different sorts of experiences can play uh, different roles in how your in your neurochemistry and how how your brain processes them. I mean, are some? I have to imagine you know, like eating cake is not the same as eating a salad. I mean, are there certain things that you do that are are, are worse for your your? I guess. Your, your mental well-being, but that still may seem like they are pleasurable or bringing you contentment or joy, but they actually have a, a net negative outcome to you. I don't know if I'm asking that correctly, but just like there's bad food, are there bad inputs uh, mentally that can still feel like they are providing value to you? Well, there's there's really no no such thing as, as a positive emotion that could harm you. Let's put it that okay. way. Yeah, um, okay. 
love is the supreme positive emotion and has, you know, all of the the neurochemical outputs. Um, Gratitude is also considered one of the main or heavy hitting emotions that we experience. Um, And then when we get into, you know, awe, um, beauty, inspiration, um, social connection, depending on the person and their circumstance, you know, that might be vital. And everybody's different in terms of which positive emotions um, and which of these subsets are really important for their own development based on where they're at in life. Yeah. What have you seen? I, I, you know, I've I've had this conversation a number of times with a a, a number of people in a number of different fields. And and I I guess I'm just curious specifically from your standpoint, what have you seen over the last year and a half, two years now with how people have dealt with isolation? I, you know, you, you talk about it on the surface. It it seems like it can be, or should be detrimental for just about everybody. Now I I do have close people in my life, but I've also developed a much better relationship with myself and feeling much more content with my, in my alone time and feel more, I don't like using this word, more blessed for, for having time with myself and my thoughts than I have previously, but I still value my social connections. I mean, have you seen a mix of the way people have dealt with the pandemic and that, that isolation, or is that, has it been one way or lopsided one way or another? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, what you're describing is a really common outcome, I think. Um, and, and one of the interplays, again, because everybody's so unique in this kind of cocktail, what we experience is the interplay of extrovertism versus introversion. Yeah. Um, folks who are a little bit more inclined towards introversion have, similar to you, really enjoyed this time. Folks who are extroverted have felt like they might be a little bit emotionally starving. Um Across the board, it seems that humans at large have been able to connect towards a renewed sense of purpose and wanting to seek, find, experience, and define purpose, which is really interesting. Um, and, you know, there's there are some chemical factors to take into account as well. So human beings, uh, our limbic system was developed, oh goodness, let's say, I think it's about 200 million years ago. Our neocortex is 100 million years old. That's the logic center. That's the newer part of our brain with higher thinking. So that limbic system shares the same level of consciousness as large mammals, cows, horses, apes, and so on. So our limbic brain, our emotionally driven brain has a herd mentality. And when we're looking at A group of cows, if one cow is diseased, it falls behind the herd in order to spare the herd, that disease. And that's a really natural nature-based outcome. Human beings have the same tendency. So when human beings are isolated for too long without adequate social connection, they begin to feel similar to a diseased cow and start scanning social engagement, social interaction for threat, and it becomes harder to intermix again. So that's also happening with folks. Um, And it just, it's, 
it's so nuanced that I don't think I could say, you know, this is, this applies to humans at large, but if it's resonating for anyone out there, it's for consideration. Yeah, absolutely. Now, understanding what you know, and in in the field that you're in, I mean, how, what was the, what have the two years been like for you? Whether, I mean, good or bad, just being able to walk through in your own mind, um, I guess, uh, pragmatically, what is happening to your body and to your mental health as we got into the pandemic and as we've slowly come out of it? What have you noticed with yourself? Yeah, so 2020 was uh, one of the hardest years of my life. I, I run a, I run a company. There's a lot of people who depend on yeah. me doing my job for their uh, livelihood. And I also serve thousands of people that I care deeply about. So yeah. just the pressure to perform um, with extenuating circumstances was super rough. Um, I'm also an off the charts extrovert. And I remember saying to a close friend before the vaccines came out, maybe I've changed. Maybe I don't need social interaction as much as I thought I did. And I believe I was probably operating with a sidecar of low-grade depression at that time. And then, you know, post-vaccination, once the world opened up again, at least for the, the spring, summer, and into fall, I was outside. (laughs) I was with (laughs) friends. I was at concerts and my energy levels went through the roof. And I said, Oh, this is real. And I, that's, I I think that's a very important lesson and one that I have to constantly remind myself about. I mean, I, I have a very basic understanding of everything we just talked about. You have a very fundamental understanding of all these things. So even if you understand these things intellectually and, and practically, it can still be so easy to get lost in the minutia and get, get so lost in our, our feelings. They, they seem to override what we already know, which is I don't want to call it dangerous, but I'm sure it can be, but it can be scary at times because even though we know we shouldn't feel this way, that doesn't, that doesn't, I can't, we, we, you can't talk yourself out of feeling in like you're in a dark place or feeling like you're depressed or, or not wanting to interact with other people. Absolutely. Something that I say all the time in coaching as a coach trainer, and as, as we ourselves work with emotions and help our clients work with emotions is this a feeling or a fact? Yeah. And distinguishing between the two is huge because if it's a feeling, okay, we can name it, we can work with it, we can live with it, we can manipulate it, we can do different things with it. If it's a fact, well, that might need some strategy, that might need some critical thinking, that might need some teamwork. Yes. <sighs> I would imagine that asking that question of yourself or for anybody listening, I mean, it can, I, I, the practice seems fantastic. And I've done that to an extent in in my own life, but actually really convincing yourself that it's a feeling as opposed to a fact, I, that has to be hard for some people, I imagine. It can be very hard to begin to distinguish between the two. Most people spend most of the time living in their limbic brains, which means that we're subject to our feelings, which means that we confuse our feelings with facts quite often. 
So a good gauge, a good rule of thumb to start out with in this practice is whatever it is, will it matter one year from now? I like that. Yeah, it's a good one. And a lot of times the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is yes. And that's just life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I, as we were talking, I did remember the name of the book that I'd read on positive psychology. And I, I'm curious if you read it. And if so I, I do have an example I want to uh, bring forth. Have you read The Happiness Advantage? No, but I'm familiar with it. Okay. It was, it was a great book. I read it, I think it was earlier in the year. And I, uh, I really want to try and figure out exactly how to word this. The, the one of the many, many sections of the book were, was that you are far more likely to find success if you are happy going into whatever task you're setting out to accomplish. And so I, I guess that was the example I was trying to provide earlier. I, I, I listened to that song. It's a, a 21 Pilots cover of, of an Elvis song. I can't help falling in love with you. It's, it's a great song that puts a smile on my face. It puts me in a great mindset into these conversations. And so, I mean, practically from, from, uh, from, from your standpoint, how much truth is there to that from a positive psychology standpoint, if you are happy, if you have a positive mindset going into a task, are you, are you, are you more likely to succeed in that task? Yes, absolutely. And what you're describing is called an applied positive intervention. Okay. So the act of listening to a song that you know is going to put you in a good mood is an intervention that you're using to prime your brain, uh, move you out of your, your negative framework into a positive framework. So here we're understanding the difference between the nervous system, stress response, fight or flight, which is associated with cortisol, and the endocrine system, which operates really slowly like a little pump of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. So exercise is another one, standing in your office doing jumping jacks. 15 minutes of cardiovascular exercise has the same punch and chemical subset of antidepressants. Um, Looking at pictures of people that you love, pulling up a positive memory, um, uh, savoring a cup of coffee, a hot shower, all of these things are exactly what you're describing. That's great. Uh, that 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 adds a lot of clarity uh, to that practice. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, when shifting, you, you mentioned you know 15 minutes of cardiovascular activity has the same effect as antidepressants. And you know previously we had spoken, I think very briefly, and I can't remember the exact context, but. It, talking about, I think we had mentioned big pharma in the past and I have, I have very much prioritized my health, especially during the the pandemic. And I, I, I get outside almost daily to, to work out and it has such a tremendous effect, but I, I also have in the past, you know, few months have watched, um, uh, shoot. Um, it was a, the docu series on on Hulu about uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical and just seeing how detrimental um, OxyContin has been to our society, especially here in the Midwest. And I, I don't know. I'm just I, I'm, I'm curious. What I just can't remember the context in which we talked about it, but I, I, I it sounds like you prioritize. You know that that natural release of. Um, of, of happiness chemicals and, and dopamine and, and serotonin. And I just, I, I'm curious your standpoint on that versus, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. 
Sure. So, you know, everybody has different brain chemistry right, at any right. given time in their life. Um, we do have the capacity to generate hormones naturally in our brains and bodies through these positive interventions that we're talking about. A 25 milligram dosage of an antidepressant is really low. And if you're committing to exercise every day to generate that level of endorphin and chemical subset in your body, well, hell yeah. yeah. If you're facing um, an acute period in your life where your anxiety is through the roof, where your depression is at clinical levels where you would genuinely benefit from having the balance in your brain restored. Antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications um, can be genuinely helpful. Um, Those differ greatly from addictive opioids uh, and and pain meds. Um, Over the course of of my own life, I've used antidepressants at times. I've used um, anti-anxiety medication at times, and it's been genuinely beneficial. At this point in my life, um, I'm pretty good with my own um, systems. And so I don't seek medication to treat things when I feel a little bit blue. Um, And I'd also say, you know, that comes with a huge amount of self-awareness going back and forth between a feeling and a fact where if I say, oh, you know, it seems like I might be feeling a little bit depressed right now. I can take that as it seems like I might be feeling a little bit depressed right now. And it doesn't necessarily change my day to day, my outlook, my job, the way I see myself, the way that I see the world. I understand what those feelings feel like as symptoms, similar to catching a cold. Yeah. And can kind of roll on with my time. That self-awareness is so incredibly important. And I think it, it, it takes a lot of effort and time to cultivate when you, to me, when you feel yourself becoming a bit blue or a bit depressed, it sounds to me like you're responding to the situation as opposed to reacting uh, Two words that I try to distinguish between often. And so how, how do you personally respond to a situation in which you feel like you're, you yourself are getting into a, a somewhat dark place? I mean, do you have, do you have an algorithm that says when I, you know, I'm starting to feel uh, a little bit depressed, I'm, I'm going to go outside or I'm going to connect with somebody that I, I care and love about? Or what, do you have a system in place that allows you to, to break free of that? Oh, yeah, I have an expansive system. So depression is something that you know, I've been clinically diagnosed with that I've struggled from greatly with major depression in the past. Um, And there was even once a time when I thought that that was just who I was, that I was fated to kind of be a depressed person. And today, you know, fast forward almost 20 years of working on it. um, When those feelings pop up for me, Step one, call my therapist and make an appointment. Step yeah. two, call my coach to check in on what I might need to set up with supports and strategy for the months ahead if I'm having a hard time kind of dragging myself through time and space. Check in on my exercise. Where are my people? Where's my A-team? Where's the, you know, my my 
advisory board for my life? Who do yes. I need to tell that I'm feeling this way? Um, how about my dog? Do we have extra snuggles around? Um, and, and just get the whole shebang lined up. And then it takes intention, focus, and grit to drive yourself through getting out of bed anyway, getting outside anyway, um, and not wallowing. Yeah. You know, I've been at a place in my life where wallowing just, it seems to be the, I don't want to call it the best option. It, it just, it, it, sometimes I, I, I know I've felt that wall, if I were to wallow, it will feel good. Like it'll feel like I'm scratching an itch or it'll feel like I'm, I'm sticking my middle finger up to the world. And that's just going to be the best course of action for me, even though now I, I know better. And I mean, there are times where it feels like I just want to rage. I want to, I want to get pissed off at the person who cut me off on the road, even though I know that's the wrong course of action. And so there are times where I don't, I'm sure you can correct me, but where my, my heart feels like I want to do one thing, but my brain's telling me to do another. And that, that is, it's, I guess it's easy to say to just make the right choice, but in the moment it, it can be so difficult to do. I mean, how, how do you escape that kind of that, that, uh, I guess that, that rush of cortisol, that, that, that stress hormone telling you that you want to fight instead of, you know, backing away from it and, you know, making the right decision. Oh, sure. So, you know, as I was listening to you, what really struck me is, um, is that what you described, you know, raising your middle finger to the world or wanting to scream or wanting to fight, those are really active responses. Yeah. Um, you know, wallowing is, is kind of a period of, of inaction. Right, of right. feeling sorry for yourself. And so, you know, if you're raging, if you're processing, um, that's fantastic. Feel your feelings. The only yeah. way out is through. Um, scream into a pillow, scream into a jar at the beach, um, call a friend and have a bitch session. Um, my own therapist recommends to me, which I, I do, is to open up a blank Google document and spill my guts out yes. to the page. And then when I'm done, I'm done. If I need to keep writing for days in a row, I do so. Um, but, you know, processing is important, however you do it. Um, and another thing that I want to mention while we're here, because it's important, is that wallowing is also very different from resting. And so when we have really strong emotions and we do get the wind knocked out of us, we will need to process and rest. Yeah. And those are two really healthy ways to go through things. Yeah. I, 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 I like that idea. And I, I think, at least for me, I, to me, I don't know, I, I guess the process in resting, it can kind of feel like inaction, but I mean, it's, that has, the inaction can sometimes probably be healthier than action. I mean, is that is that essentially what you're saying? And actually, just kind of sitting down and understanding what our thought processes are and why why we're here, as opposed to you know actually making an irrational decision. Or am I not understanding that? Yeah. So, um, what would be an example of an accompanying irrational decision? 
Well, I guess in, in, in re- regard to my last example, you know, getting getting into a fight for, and I, I've never been in a fight. It's not like I'm a I'm a hard ass, but I mean, getting into a, vi- a fight for somebody who has perhaps uh, cut you off or, or wronged you, or you know, or or jumped in front of you in line, just getting into a fight for something that is absolutely not worth getting into a fight for. Yeah. So what we know about emotions is that when we name them, when we give them space to exist and we give ourselves an opportunity to feel them uh, and to process them, to move through them, we do okay. So, you know, step one, what am I feeling? I feel angry. Okay. So right there, your your limbic system, the part of your brain that's popping up with this emotion, I feel heard, cool, this emotion's getting processed, the neocortex wakes up, we're listing, we're naming things, hey, 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 is there a decision that needs to be made here when we start listing? So then that rational brain kicks in, well, I'm in the middle of the supermarket with a gallon of milk and a watermelon, this might not be the right time to, you know, <laughs> slam both on the floor. Right. And, and that's, you know, how humans engage their higher functioning is to process through that limbic system and then um, turn on the neocortex in order to alleviate that fight or flight and move into rational thought. Um, Likewise, sometimes that momentary on off switch isn't enough to really clear that emotion. And that's where talking talking to a friend, talking to a therapist, writing in a journal, um, talking to all of your friends about the same issue as many times as you need to, to really clear it out so that you can then move into the neocortex. Absolutely. And I I love the idea of naming your emotions that reminded me um, over Thanksgiving I was with my sister and uh, her and her husband have uh, two young girls. One, I think is, uh, let's just say three and the other one's just turned one. And so the three-year-old, uh, you know, she's talking now and uh, she got upset about something. And and my sister, I had never heard her do this before. In fact, I'd never heard anybody do this before. She sat uh, my niece down and said, what are you feeling right now? And she said, jealousy, uh, because of her younger sister had done something. And that was very powerful to me because I, I did not have no discredit to my parents, but there was no sort of um, emotional intelligence training at that age for me. And being able to name those emotions, just it was, it was kind of a foreign concept until a much later age for myself. And so I, I loved seeing that. Uh, I loved seeing her do that. And I have to imagine doing that early on can only have a tremendous impact on on her future life. Absolutely. It's a, there's something called a feelings wheel, which is a tool that you can use to do this. And it's especially awesome with young people because emotions come in so many different flavors that, okay, you know, anger, sure, that's pretty broad, but what specifically is it? So when you look at a feelings wheel and there are all of the different nuances and you get to choose yours, it's so validating and it gives language to what's going on in our brains. Um, There's another technique that you can use to really pull this forward. So if there's a recurring emotion like fear or shame or anger that really gets in the way of things, especially with adults. You can give that feeling a face and a name, turn it into an imaginary creature 
and externalize it. So we get it out of us instead of that crushing feeling of shame. It's like, oh, that's Fred the orangutan that just showed up. (laughs) Yeah, that's, um, I I love that. And that's a very poignant example. And I, I think that is one of the most common negative emotions that I'm sure a lot of adults deal with, but I, me specifically is shame. And I, 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 I do my best to, to not, not, not necessarily avoid the emotion. Cause I, I don't, I don't I do my best not to avoid anything, but to not put myself in a situation where I'm going to feel shame because I know how, I know how that, that feels. So trying to have the foresight to, to not get to a place where I'm going to intentionally say or do something stupid that's going to make me feel bad later on. That's just, it's, it's been a very powerful motivator for me. And honestly, it's probably one of the major reasons why I quit drinking because I, I, I knew, you know, following a night of heavy drinking, there was going to be shame involved in one way or another. And uh, to me, that's just one of the most powerful things that I'm able to do to, to, to uh, not feel that sort of, sinking feeling in my stomach because I, I just I, I remember that and I, I I can't stand it. Yeah. Shame I mean, number one, what you just described with drinking and shame is really common. Yeah. Um and I, I want to say kudos to you for doing something that's really healthy for you. So, you know, that's awesome. Um number two, you know, that's a lot of work to self-manage in that way. (laughs) That's a lot of work. And so I also want to acknowledge, you know, that that's, that's a lot of time and effort and and can also probably feel exhausting. So when I was talking about the rest part of it, that's when, you know, you you acknowledge, Hey, I'm tired from all of this and that's okay too. Um, I, I was working with a client just this morning around the shame piece and it comes out for adults so often and it really is deserving of gentleness and critical attention because usually our shame monsters are little pieces of ourselves that we developed in childhood yeah and we're carrying them around with us as adults and one of the ways that i like to work with clients on this is let's think about how old you were when this message first came up. And if you were 14, if you were 11, if you were 16, if you were 22, you know, let's love that little person. Let's pull that person back inside of the house of our body and tell them that we're an adult now. That's not the world that we inhabit. You don't have to be concerned about this. you know, because we don't want a 14 year old in charge. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do my best to do that. I, I do. Uh, you know, there are some times where I will have a, a random memory at, at, from 10 years ago, I don't know, 15 years ago. And all of a sudden I will feel a sinking feeling in my stomach. And I, I very consciously say, nobody Nobody involved in that situation is thinking about that anymore. They don't remember it. You're the only one. You, there's no reason for you to have a shame or a negative feeling about this. And that, that has seemed to help out with those weird monkey brain types of thoughts that will randomly pop up. 
Oh, yeah. I can explain what exactly what's going on in your please. brain if you like. Please, please. Yeah. So what you just described, where a memory comes up and you experience a wincing sensation. Some people feel it in their stomach. Some people feel it in their chest, throat, back of the neck are the most common physical representations. That's called a somatic. Soma is body response. So what's going on there is all of our memory is triggered by some sort of outside stimuli. It's completely beyond our control. It can be a smell, a sound, a visual cue, anything that activates our senses. And it takes us back down memory lane. So your brain takes a thought and runs it down a neural pathway that you haven't run down. It's like going to someplace that you used to live and going through familiar streets. And all of a sudden your thought travels through a neural mass. A neural mass is like a little gray cloud and it's filled with shards of memory and emotion that are often really jumbled up because let's be real, you were 15 and it's kind of cloudy in there. And so all we have is this like jumble of memory and emotion. And as your thought travels through that neural mass, ah, that's when you experience that physical wincing. It's born of trauma, big T trauma or little T trauma, you know, being born is traumatic. Stubbing your toe is traumatic. Um, So we all have these little kind of brain bugs that happens. And so, you know, you're, you're spot on with that wincing. And, and when I use this language with my clients, I say, your, your thought just traveled through a neural mass. And you can actually say to yourself, my thought just traveled through a neural mass. That's what that is. It was like yeah. a little slideshow of memory and emotion. That's fascinating. Yeah, I had I, I I obviously did not have the language for that, but I mean it just it feels so much more empowering to to one, I mean a lot of these things feel makes it feel so much better to hear that you're not the only one who experiences that. I think even though I think intellectually we understand that, you know, we are in essence, not very unique in that there are a billion of us and there have to be others experiencing the same thing as us. But just understanding that, that other people go through that and actually having the language to be able to describe it, it helps out tremendously. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is everything that I'm describing. This is part and parcel of coaching and positive psychology. So learning about your brain, kind of like a user's guide, that comes from the work of Margaret Moore. She's out of Well Coaches at Harvard. And she's done some amazing research at the intersection of positive psychology and coaching. And it's all for the purpose of normalizing this stuff, understanding our brains. Because when we're subject to these thoughts and feelings, we're like, oh, shit, there's something wrong with me. And there's not. This is typical. Absolutely. Um, I know we've been talking for 45 minutes, but I, I do want to bring it up because it is another thing that I'd written down and a feeling of, a feeling of we're, of us being alone in a particular situation, I think can be described also as, or one thing that we mentioned previously was imposter syndrome. And I think that's something mm. a lot of us, uh, uh, deal with all of the time. I, I deal with it constantly and I'm, I'm sure many, many people do too, um, I mean, what is the work that you do with uh, your clients who who are facing imposter syndrome? And I'm just, I mean, how 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 do you describe it from a from a technical standpoint? Yeah, so um, imposter syndrome is tricky. Everybody experiences it. 
And one of the best ways to combat imposter syndrome is to look at feelings versus facts, because often that's where the mix-up occurs. I actually just went through this in a coaching session with my own coach. Um, I So I am a CEO. I left my PhD to found my company. I've been in my job for five years and I've been wildly successful and I just launched my second company for context. And I said to my coach, you know, sometimes when I think about my job, I can't imagine that there's anything else I could do in this world because I don't feel like I have any tangible skills. And she laughed at me. I I can see why. Yeah. I mean, you are obviously very accomplished. And she said, is that a feeling or a fact? And I said, well, (laughs) I suppose that's a feeling. Yeah. Okay, then what are the facts? And she had me walk through what I do every day from an operational perspective to gather data. Yeah on my tangible skill set. And then I sat there with all of the facts laid out on the table and realized that that feeling, which I still hold, which is still kind of uncomfortable, is is just not grounded in reality. And so there I am. I have this feeling that I, I can't find my way out of the fog. And then the facts are I super can. I get that. Um... And tell me if this resonates with you, because I, I really think that this is the, well, from a, from a layman standpoint, I think this is the the source of where my inferiority complex comes from, um, is the comparison of myself to others. And I, uh, a previous guest um, earlier in the year, uh, he had give, he had given me the, actually this was in his book, uh, it was a Teddy Roosevelt quote, uh, comparison is a thief of joy. I had never yes. heard that quote before. I had never heard it before, but now it's pinned up on my monitor because it is absolutely 100% the truth for me. When I feel like I don't f- match up to somebody, I realize that I'm comparing myself to them. And I, that's just, I am never going into going to be in a place where I'm competing with somebody both either physically or even, you know, for a job because I, 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 I own my own business. I, I'm doing these things because they bring joy and fulfillment to my life. And so whenever I compare myself to someone, that is just, that is such a, that's such a bad place for me to be in. And so I, I remind myself of that quote and it helps out tremendously. Oh yeah. And that self-awareness is so key. So anybody who experiences this construct might have different roots and different legs to it. Um, Comparison might not be on the table for everyone. Um, Something that a concept that I really enjoy using when I am faced with a similar scenario to you or a client or a student is, is, and it comes from the Urban Dictionary. It's a term called Sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. And the idea is that we're so consumed in our own heads and our own lives every day. And we walk around in these little, you know, thought balloons. And very rarely do we take the time to consider that every single human that we see at the coffee shop, at the food store, through our computer screen, has the exact same depth of experience. Yes. Doubts, anguish, joy, love, loss, fear, all of it. And we can connect to our flawed humanity through that recognition. 
how does that land for you? It lands quite well. Um, it's extremely helpful to realize that other people are going through the same things uh, that I am. Um, I, I think the part of me, I, I mean, to I guess to expound upon that a little bit, the part of me that that strives to to have some sort of uh, Buddhist philosophy in him, you know, wants to, you know, help others, help alleviate that, that, that suffering from others too. It kind of gets into a whole new tailspin, but I mean, it's, it's so helpful to realize that we are all having the human experience and we're all de- dealing with it in our own ways. And that some ways work better for, for that guy down the street than do for me. And of course yourself included. So it's, I, I don't know. It, it's 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 um, comforting and terrifying, I guess, at the same time. Yeah, I I can I can understand that. Um, Kristen Neff is a a Buddhist researcher and positive psychologist, and she's out of Berkeley, if I'm not mistaken. And her work is focused on self compassion, and a lot of her writing talks about how damaging self-esteem has been for our society as a concept because it gives us that insecurity of measuring up against others. But when we orient ourselves from the perspective of self-compassion, we can connect to imperfect humanity as a kind of an existential state of existence and drop down into the all there is is this present moment. We know nothing truly. Ness of life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a fascinating concept, and I'm I'm trying to think about it practically. And I, you know, when I when I think about self esteem, I, I think about it from you know my sixth or seventh grade self. You know, dealing with puberty, dealing with a, a gap in my teeth, dealing with acne, and just trying to maintain some semblance of of, of um, confidence. And I, I I don't know practically speaking. I mean how. Is it possible to, or I, no, I shouldn't say is it possible, how do you raise the next generation to focus on self-compassion as opposed to self-esteem? It takes a village, yeah. for sure. Um, it's, you know, I don't, I don't have children and I, I, I celebrate parents because they have yes. such a yeah. hard job, yeah. especially today. Um, it's, I'm very hopeful that the ways in which we're turning towards purpose and community coming out of the pandemic will signal a change because the best way to get out of your own head is to turn your attention towards helping others and to connect with our common humanity. And that I believe is the path forward. I I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, that's yeah. Absolutely. Noel, uh, this has been uh, an absolutely mind-blowing conversation, and I, I, I hate to cut it off because I'm sure we could go for a lot longer. I think that's just, we, we need to do this again. I think that's, uh, that is the point I'm trying to drive across. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can. Um, but before I let you go, I do have a few closing questions. And you know, the first of which, you know, I always try to be as much of a resource for you or try to be as beneficial for you as you have been for me in the last hour. And really, honestly, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. So I'd like to ask the question, 
if there's somebody listening who could help you in your personal professional growth, what resources are you looking for so that they might be able to reach out and say, hey, I can help Noel? Oh, awesome. So, you know, in, in my new venture, I work with leaders and managers around all of this. And I do so through Lumia Coaching, L-U-M-I-A. And then, of course, I'm always interested if anybody wants to hop on over to, to Journey and learn about becoming a coach themselves. That's great. And I, I did want to, this is neither really here nor there, but uh, we were connected by Lisa Bond and I'm actually connecting with her again this week. And I just, you know, I, I respect her so highly and obviously uh, you yourself as well. And just the, the work uh, you guys are doing, even though it, it, it seems a bit different, it's, it, it's all in the interest of, of one uh, mission and helping us improve. And that's just, that's so important. Lisa's awesome. Uh, I got to know her through my own uh, coach training program. She came through our doors. And um, I, if, if anyone is looking to Lisa for referrals, I can hands down recommend her as a practitioner. That's fantastic. Awesome. Um, all right. My next question. Um, I, I'm always looking for the next best book that is going to change my life. And so the simple question for me is, if you could name one book that's just had a profound impact in your life, what would that book be and why? Oh, so most recently, I, I read the book of life design by Burnett and Evans. And it's an idea of building your way forward based on what's working. And for me, that was so poignant, because the concept that really just nailed me was that at any given time, there are five possible outcomes that are all great. Yes. I, yeah, I, um, I, I, I like that a lot. I mean, how, without getting too deep into the book, I mean, the, so the, the five possible outcomes that, that are great, I mean, is, do you, are you asking yourself to choose one direction to get to one outcome? Or are you trying to accomplish all five of them? Oh, no, you can only, you can only be on one path at a time in right. order to walk that path effectively. It takes a lot of the pressure off though. So, you know, we're raised in this hierarchical society where you have to grow up and, you know, find your passion and get the job and do the thing. And it's a lot of pressure, especially on young folks yeah. to choose well. And when we realized that, you know, I could quit my job tomorrow and become a jewelry designer and live an absolutely fulfilled life, I could, you know, move to Paris and begin teaching English and live an absolutely fulfilled life. I could stay on my yes. path and build my companies. I could, you know, become a professional dog walker and make muffins on the side. Great. <laughs> that all of those yes. would be just marvelous. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I mean, to me, it sounds like there, you really, there's no right or wrong decision. I mean, the path that you, you choose to, to move forth on is going to best serve you. Yes. Yep. And you can change your mind at any time. That's great. I love that. All right. And last but not least, if you could leave the audience with one personal call to action that you either live your life by or that you implore your clients to live their lives by, what would that call to action be? Pay attention to joy. I love that. That's Specifically perfect. for 10 to 20 seconds. Yes. <laughs> yes. Noelle, thank you so much again for this conversation. Um, if people would like to connect with you, if they'd like to find you online, if they'd like to uh, learn more about uh, your company, what, what is the best place for them to reach out to you? 
journey.co, J-R-N-I dot C-O. Perfect. Noel, thank you again. And uh, if, we, if we don't, uh, I'm sure we'll speak again soon, but I hope you have a wonderful start to 2022. And I, I do look forward to connecting with you again uh, sometime in the future. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. One more time, I would like to share my thanks for Noel joining me on the podcast. It was such a pleasure having a conversation based on the science of happiness and positive psychology. And there's so much to be taken away from this. I'm sure I'm going to go back and explore the topics we discussed deeper. If there was a name or a topic of conversation that you missed or you couldn't get it written down fast enough, I've done my best to take extensive show notes, which you can find at themosaiclifepodcast.com alongside the notes from all of the previous episodes. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, I would be incredibly grateful if you would share this with a friend that would mean the world to me and it would help the podcast continue to grow. Of course, thank all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast. It means the world to me. And as 2021 starts to come to a close, I hope you'll take the podcast with you into 2022. And more importantly, I hope you will continue demanding the very best for yourselves. Until next time, take care, do better, and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.